Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. For the summer, we'll only have two services, one at 9.30 and one at 11.30 a.m. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Good morning. I am Robert Kelly. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad that you guys have come on out to join us for uh, worship and a little bit of uh, teaching. If you're a guest here this morning, we're really excited to have you here. We love uh, getting to know uh, new folks. And so uh, thank you so much for uh, carving out some time and being with us this morning. And we look forward to getting to know you better. So we um, are in a series over the course of the summer where we're looking at the mission and vision and the values of the church. And so we're exploring all of these kinds of the ins and the outs of, of what makes us beacon. Now, for you who are brand new to the church, this is a great time to be jumping in because you're actually getting a, right out of the gate uh, really a, a more comprehensive explanation of who we are as a congregation. And uh, so hopefully that is, uh, will be helpful for you as uh, you continue to sort of uh, figure out, uh, you know, who we are and what uh, your place is here. We're going to continue in that series. We're talking about an idea that we call empowering uh, disciples. So, our, so, but before we kind of jump into that core value and how it applies at Beacon, we need to do some essential uh, biblical theology first. So are there any gelato fans here? That's not the biblical theology part. That's kind of, any gelato fans? How, have the rest of you not tried it? Because it's, it's, it's awesomeness in a little cup. And so uh, how many of you have heard of uh, the International Delight Cafe? Anyone? Any takers? All right. So International Delight Cafe. We were down there uh, with some friends. They have 80 plus flavors of gelato. 80 plus flavors. They have vanilla and they have chocolate. They have strawberry and they have chocolate strawberry and they have rainbow and they have like peanut butter and peanut butter and chocolate and they have vanilla. It has nothing to do with my, what I'm going, where I'm going, but they're like really great flavors. So much so that we needed to find a good gelato place a little closer to home. So my wife and I checked out this place on Willis Ave. You guys know this one, the Gelateria or something? So anyway, it's a nice day. Uh, Cheryl and I are going to go there after this service around 1.30 to 2 o'clock. So you're all invited to come for a gelato. There's like 20 seats in the place. So it'll be, huh? I am buying, yes, for me and my wife. Um, and uh, so, yes. You are all invited to descend upon it. We, seriously, we are actually going there after this. So I hope some of you can make it and have some really great gelato, especially you doubters. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, I was making a point here. Oh, yes, I was having dinner with some friends from town. And uh, so we actually went to this place. And we're all hanging out. We're having a great time just, just uh, shooting the breeze. And we started talking kind of about you know, life and what's going on and all of this. And... Uh, 
we, st we started hearing folks really kind of talking in ways that were saying things like, you know, mostly what they do is uh, they get up, they go to work, they pay bills, and they wait to die. And of course, I thought, this is really funny, <laughs> you know, that we sort of like, you know, this is how we describe life. But of course, then you realize we're actually not really joking. There's a little hint of despair in, in the voices, and you realize, wait, it's, it would be funny if it weren't so, so painfully real. How many of us have a sense that we wake up, we run, 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 like a hamster in a wheel. We come home and collapse on the couch. We binge watch some show. And then we sleep fitfully, only to wake the next morning and run, 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 run. Over and over, repeat, repeat, repeat. We stop to ask, is there more to life than going to school, getting a job, getting married, having kids, sending them off to college, then try to figure out who we are in this world anymore without them as we sit around paying bills waiting to die. And I'm, I'm always delighted to find out that the Bible doesn't leave us with that kind of despair, that kind of meaninglessness. The scriptures point to a much more profound, a much better way. They give us a different, it gives us a different version of humanity and our reason for existence. So let's open in a Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Leave your, your Bibles open if you don't mind during this because we're going to be in and out of the text throughout uh, the message. You can dog ear your Bible if you want. Just don't dog ear the Bibles from the seats in front of you. You know, that wouldn't be so good. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so here, Peter is telling us that we're meant to be a spiritual house or a temple. We're meant to be a sacred space. Now, before we see how this idea would impact our lives more directly... I want to introduce to you an idea from biblical theology regarding this idea of temple. And uh, many of the ideas that I'm developing are coming from a book by uh, G.K. Beale. And uh, this book is called uh, The Temple and the Church's Mission. It is an excellent but somewhat dense read. And uh, it actually got me a little nervous this morning as I'm going over, you know, my notes and what I wanted to talk about today. And I realized... When I was reading it, I got really excited, and I kind of went like down, 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 down into these details, and, and I realized I was kind of nerding out on it, like theologically nerding out a little, and I realized, then I panicked because I'm, I'm getting ready here this morning. I'm like, what if I got so nerded out that actually no one is really going to be excited about this topic? <laughs> like, I found it really cool, and like maybe some like nerd like Trevor might, but like... <laughs> 
But like, what if there's only like two or three nerds? Maybe George is a little theologically nerdy. Like maybe there might be a few. <laughs> Dennis, there are a couple, you know, there's a few more nerds. No, anyway, um, it's, nerding is in, by the way. So don't, anyway, I got so down that, you know, I got so down that road. I'm suddenly, I'm like, I hope any of this. So we'll, we'll see, because I still think it's cool. But, uh, but, it, you, but you, you got to stick with me here because i got to cover a lot of details and tie some threads together before we get to where we're actually going. You see, the whole of creation it can be conceived of as God's temple. So imagine the whole of the cosmos being the place where God was meant to dwell. He created it, and he wanted to fill it all with his presence. It's the place he would dwell. So if you think of how we view temples kind of historically, even, even today around the world, many people view their church buildings and things and temples like this, that it's the special place where God dwells. And that's sort of how we view these buildings. But of course, the cosmos was, was designed to be God's temple where his presence would be felt in a special way by his creation and where his creation could worship him. All of the cosmos were his temple. And an argument could be made that the tabernacle of the Old Testament and then the temple later by extension was a representation of the whole of the cosmos. All right? So you guys know, some of you will remember the, the story of the tabernacle. God gave very specific instructions on how to build it. And you could think of it as having three distinct areas. So the, the tabernacle has the outer courtyard. That is the place where the people could come. The outer courtyard represents the terrestrial world, the habitable world, everything that we inhabit as humans. This planet, the earth and the seas, is represented by the outer courtyard. It's where the people of the earth live. A couple of indicators is you'll see there's only really two major pieces that are in the outer court. One is the Great Sea. That's what they call it. It's actually a giant wash basin, but it's called the sea. And another is an altar made from uncut stone. It's the earth. It's the earth and it's the sea represented in the outer court. After you get out of, and that's where humanity dwells, and it is the first phase, you might say, or the first degree of holiness being set apart for God, his creation. Well, then the next place happens inside the tabernacle, and that's the bottom picture here is kind of a big, a big version of that. The tabernacle inside, you've got the first section, which is called the, the holy place. And the holy place is where the priests would do their work. And in that area, it was covered with gold, and it was decorated in all of these kinds of you know, with, uh, you know, fruits and like pomegranates and things like that. And there were a couple of pieces of furniture, the table for the showbread and the menorah, the, the, the lampstand. The lampstand is an interesting thing because it has seven lights. And those lights on the lampstand, scholars would, some scholars would say, represent the seven visible lights that the ancients could have seen the most, the brightest of the lights in the night sky. It's not all of the stars, but they're symbolic of the heavens. The sun, the moon, and the planets that you see being the seven visible lights. 
that would be, mean that the lampstand and the holy place represents the, not the land that we inhabit, but the rest of the, of the heavenly host, the skies and the, the universe outside of us. It's the visible world that isn't the earth. And it's a more sacred space, and in a sense you could think of it, if God had a location, you could think of it as the ancients did, as closer to God. It is a more holy space, and it's where the priests would do their work. You could also see some neat parallels, because this is also the realm where it, it embroidered into the curtains is where the cherubim would, the, the angels. The angels are, are seen as defending the holy place, uh, the most holy place, from the holy place. You weren't allowed to go into the most holy place, and the, the angels were defending it. They were standing between the two. It's a similar picture that you get in Revelation when they're describing how the, the angels sit around the throne room. In a sense, they're guarding and they're protecting the, the place where God sits from the, the people who are in the holy place. This is where, again, the priests would do their work, and it is the second degree of holiness found in the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies, that represents, this is the last part, that's the section behind that curtain that you see. The Holy of Holies had the ark in it. And inside the ark was the law, which was covered by the mercy seat, which we talked about, I think, a month or so ago. And it was there that the presence of God dwelt. And in the Old Testament, he, he dwelt there in the form of a cloud, and a bright light, the Shekinah glory, they call it. So God rested there and he called it his footstool as if the throne room of heaven rested with his feet there in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. But you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. It wasn't like something you can go in and take a tour of it. You went in there, you would die. Only the high priest once a year and only with a blood offering could go into the most holy of places. And he had to go in with, with a whole lot of uh, incense burning as if to obscure his view because the holy place, the most holy place, represents the unseen world. So you have the earth in the outer courts, you have the skies as the holy place, and you have as the most holy place the unseen world that we all know exists, but we can't actually see it unless it is revealed to us as it was in the moment of the ark and what the mercy seat represents, that's for another message. So anyway, even in the priestly garments, you can see this same threefold uh, breakdown happen. And you'll see it over and over again with these connections that actually draw it back to the Garden of Eden. Some of the same materials, the same threefold division. In fact, the parallels between the temple and the Garden of Eden bring us just a little bit, we got to go just a little bit further down this nerdy little rabbit hole uh, before we can come back out. Because now we got to go to the Garden of Eden. When, sometimes when we think about the garden, we just think of the whole world and in it was a garden. But that's not quite technically correct. There was actually a, an Eden and within Eden was a Garden of Eden. And the garden, now you see, is the most holy space. Remember in Genesis, when, the, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, it was, we were told that God would walk in the midst of the garden. That's where God dwelt in that most holy place. Then you get the 
part of Eden, which you would say now represents the terrestrial world. I'm sorry, the, uh, the holy place. And the outer courts are represented by the whole of the planet. So you can still see these three spaces. So the Garden of Eden, one of the ways of thinking about this is that the Garden of Eden was actually a temple garden. It was an original temple garden that represented the whole of the cosmos. Now, God created all of the cosmos to be his dwelling place, but, but the enemy and his minions actually have dominion over the earth. So the garden temple is like a foothold that God has created in the enemy's camp. He's created a temple and he has put Adam in this temple and he has given Adam some very specific instructions. In fact, here's the the, the really interesting thing. In Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord took The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, we hear that and we go, oh, Adam was the first landscaper, right? Like he was the first gardener. That's what he was supposed to do. The great call of humanity is to go cut flowers. You know, that's what we're supposed to do because we hear that idea. We hear the garden. We have this image in our head and that's what he's going to do. He's going to go clip this little thing here and clip this little. And without the curse, what was he working on? Like, I don't even know. What was he getting rid of? But these two words for work and for keep. Those same two words elsewhere are translated to serve and to guard. Not only that, when they appear together, they usually refer to the job of a priest in guarding and keeping the temple. So in Numbers 3, you'll see it there. They're speaking about the priests. He say they, the priests, are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. See, we like to think of Adam and Eve as these sort of hippie children who were like living in the garden. But in actuality, they were the original priests of God's outpost temple. Because of this, by the way, there's all sorts of other parallels that exist. You can go through the scriptures and pull up a whole lot of the decorations in the temple, the carvings, the embroidery, the garments of the priests. The entrance to the temple was facing the east, just like the entrance of Eden was, was from the east. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, if you touched them, the penalty was death for both. Like there's all of these parallels that you could begin to see. And you can see it later in the end in the book of Revelations. There was a river running through the original garden temple in Eden and in the last temple that will inhabit the, will, will inhabit the whole of the earth, there is a river that flows through it and waters the earth just like in Eden. You see that these are the themes that have been repeated over and over again and designed to teach us something important because the whole of God's of of creation is actually God's temple. And if God, if the garden was God's temple, and if the temple was a reflection of the cosmos, then today we get to ask ourselves, who were the priests of this temple? 
and it's us. See, Adam was put here, the first man, Eve, the first woman, to be priests in the temple. You are their children. We are supposed to be picking up Adam's original commission. And what this means for us as followers of Christ, just like Adam before us, as priests, we're temple makers. Remember, his commission was to take the whole of the planet for the temple. He was told to go and subdue the earth and to fill it with his children. Why? Because they carried the image of God wherever they went. They were supposed to expand the temple from the Garden of Eden until it inhabited the whole and covered the whole of the planet. That was Adam's original commission, and it is ours today. So you can imagine that. You actually are a priest of this global cosmic temple. Look back at verse 9 in our first Peter text. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. I think most of us, we grew up looking at priests or pastors, and we draw a fairly hard line between us and them. And I mean, this is actually one of the main reasons why I struggled going into vocational ministry, because I looked out in the world, I saw a whole lot of these pastors and priests, and I'm like, I ain't one of them. There ain't no possible way. And I know what some of you are thinking, you are definitely not a pastor or a priest, Robert. And I get that, and I totally understand that. And that's actually how I very much had felt and, and even really still do feel. But in a sense, that is true. It's not that I, I wasn't in any way that was supposed to be uniquely set apart as a priest. We, as the followers of Christ, are uniquely set apart as priests in this temple. All of us are priests. Our prayers are now the incense that was offered up in the temple. Instead of sacrificing animals, our holy lives, we're told, are the new sacrifice that God looks for. We are the ones tasked with keeping the impure things out of the temple, which is us. We're supposed to protect the temple by teaching and living God's word. See, this is the, the realm. It's that second tier of holiness. And in fact... We are representatives. We are the mediators between the people who live in the outer courts and the deity that lives in the holy of holies. We inhabit a sacred space in this world, the holy place, and we do our priestly work so that the people in the world might understand the world is destined to be God's temple. And it will happen when we fulfill our mission till the end time when God makes it so. And the, and the prophecy of the revelation comes true, which is a temple that fills the earth. If we, in God's image, will now fill all of our spheres of living with the image of God, we will begin to press back the darkness 
We extend the borders of the temple like a beacon on dark shores. We actually will press back the darkness and we will reveal the true kingdom of God in us and in the world. We will expand the temple wherever we go. That is our purpose as followers of Christ. Your priestly mission matters. Your priestly mission matters. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage, wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our very lives will lead to the worship of God from the people that see us and how we live and how we interact and the things that we do. They will look at your life as a priest and they will be drawn to worship. That's the role of a priest, drawing people in to live lives so radically different, so holy and so generous that the world begins to see and feel what the presence of God is like. And so we will press into the whole of the world and we proclaim the hope that we have in Christ to all that will listen. And by doing this, we will be extending the boundaries of the temple. We will be enlarging the temple and taking back enemy land as we do that. Uh, in one of the great, many of the great quotes from this book, G.K. Beale, he says, the main point is that our task as the church is to be God's temple, so filled with his glorious presence that we expand and fill the earth with that presence until God finally accomplishes the goal completely at the end of time. This is our common mission. An old story, a story is told of uh, the old Spartan uh, king. It might not have even been the Spartan king. It might have been like the semi-mythical Spartan legislator, Lycurgius. But anyway, he was asked... Why does the great city-state of Sparta have no walls? In the ancient world, every city would build walls. Your walls would be your source of pride. You know, of course you would, you would protect your, your people. You would keep them safe by building great walls. How is it that, that Sparta has no walls? And this king or legislator, he looked at, he pointed to his, his this is from 300, you guys, anyway. It's not a real photo. Um, but anyway, he, he, he looks at all, he points to all of, of his men and he says, these are our bricks. These are our bricks. And there's a sense in which this could be said of the church. The Spartans formed a wall made of men who defended and extended the great city of Sparta. And here is Jesus telling us that you are the bricks of this temple. We need no physical walls. You are the bricks. And we are taking the land back from the enemy because we are a wall of men and women pressing into the darkness. Now, we do not get to kick people down wells. You, this is Sparta. That's not, it was a great scene, but that's not the way we fight. But that does not change how true this is of the church. You are the bricks 
of this temple, the core value that we've been working around the edges is empowered disciples, empowered disciples. And as a core value, we talk about this and we define this as every Christ follower is called, gifted, and strategically placed by God to advance his kingdom. Therefore, we are committed to placing the ministry in the hands of the people by seeking to equip them to discover, develop, and use their gifts regardless of gender in fruitful, satisfying service. Here's what we mean by this. God has put you here for a reason. And I mean geographically here. In New York, in Nassau County, you are here for a purpose, to extend God's temple here in Nassau County, in one of the most needed areas of the country. You are here as a brick in God's temple. And as church leaders, our role is to actually equip you so that you are the most effective priests imaginable. Sometimes we get this all screwed up and we look at the church leaders and we say, oh, the church leaders, they're the ones who stand in the gap between us and God. No, we don't stand as mediators between you and God. You have direct access to God. You are the mediators between the world in the outer court and God. That is not our unique call or function. Our unique contribution is to help you stand in the gap to connect with the outside world and to draw them into worshiping in the presence of God. That's our role. Our job is to make certain to the best of our ability and with every ounce of energy we have that you are a fully equipped priesthood. You'll see in that as well in that statement that this is regardless of gender. We believe that men and women are equally called by God into all of the ministries to expand God's temple. And we believe that when you find that, when you find your unique mission, what God has called you to do, that you will find a, a type of joy and satisfaction in life. You'll experience the pleasure of God smiling on you, and you will know that you are fulfilling what you were meant to fulfill. So let me ask you, what is your priestly service? What is it? What have you found? What are you doing? Do you view all of your life as an opportunity to expand God's temple and to make his presence known? No matter what it is you're doing, no matter your profession, no matter what neighborhood you live in, are you finding out what your role in that place is, in your neighborhood, in your job, in your hobbies? Are you living as priests and working for the good of the kingdom wherever you find yourself. And I'd encourage you to find an actionable ministry sphere. In the Old Testament, the, the priests all had different responsibilities. You know, some would sing, and some would offer sacrifices, and some would repair the temple, and some would carry and collect wood. And, and there were all of these different people doing all of these different activities, but all together the priests accomplished the mission. And that's how we're to function today. Each person finding their unique, actionable ministry sphere, the place where you can do what God has called you to do. One of the neat things that we've been working on as a staff is we've tried to figure out 
how many people it takes to run a church. You know, just kind of like throwing it out there, trying to figure it out. So we count all of the ministries and the people that are helping and how many hours each person. We've got these lots of spreadsheets. Anyway, well, let, let me throw out a number. It's, 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 a, it's a work in progress right now. We're still developing this. But I'm going to call it the, 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 the rule of the one-third, the rule of the one-third, which is that it takes at a church of about our size with the kinds of ministries that we're doing, it, you would, it would require at least one-third of, a con of the participants, of the congregants, to continue to build and develop a local church. In the early days, it was 100% because there were like four of us. But it, later on, you know, it start, you, get, you, get, you, know, you get kind of like you know, economies of scale and things like that. But it's at least a third. It might even be more like 40%. But it's at least a third of the folks who are here in a given congregation who would be required if we want to continue to grow and expand the ministry. We have a lot of people who are already helping, you know, and so whether it's that you're in cafe or you're helping with media, you're in the band or you're helping in Kids Quest, one of our vital ministries, discipleship groups or small groups, whatever it might be, if you count all of these folks up, if you want to continue growing a church and, and continuing to see it reach its full redemptive potential as a local embodiment of God's universal temple, then you need at least a third or maybe 40% of a congregation to do it, meaning that's how many folks it would take to continue keeping the, the ministries and the offering and the teachings going. If we were fully staffed in all of those ministries, that's what we think it would be. There's also a lot of other areas that are still open to serve. I mean, all of those areas still have openings to serve. If you're saying to me, I really want to figure out what my priestly service is. All of those ministries still have opportunities to serve. But there are other areas that we, we don't talk about that often, like our back office. We need high-level people, well-organized, who can help out in the middle of the week to actually run all of the nitty-gritty of the ministries. Great opportunities for a priest who might not see themselves fitting in other roles. We also have great opportunities for people in whole new areas that we're currently spending kingdom resources on that we could free up for better uses. Things like the building, grounds, you know, uh, maintenance, and all of those areas that right now we just got to call someone and write a check. All of those resources could be freed up for the kingdom if God's priests were called into their areas of service. Now, that's, so take that whole chunk. That's what it would require for a church like Beacon to continue to press forward. As we get larger, that means an increasing number of people. If we were fully staffed, if everyone right now said, I want to find my priestly function, the local church would not have enough slots for all of the people who would fulfill their, their priestly service. So that means a whole lot of you will need to find it outside of the local church. And some of you already have. You're doing big brother, big sister, and you're involved in your local community. You're involved in a not-for-profit. You're helping clean water projects, whatever it might be. But I also know a whole lot of folks aren't. And as a congregation and as a leadership team, we're committed to helping every single person who calls Beacon home to find their priestly service. And maybe for some of you, it'll be in the 40% or 30%, 33 who, who will help actually run the organism, or if it will be the people who will be out in the front lines doing another type of ministry in their own sphere. But either way, we want to equip 
and enable and empower you to do this more and more. Now think about it. If you're waking up every day and you're wondering, I feel like I'm not really going anywhere. I feel like I really don't have a purpose. I really don't know what's next. I feel like I'm just, I'm on a, on a wheel and I'm not real. I don't matter. It might be because you haven't found your priestly service. It might be because you haven't actually, you're doing your thing, but you're not living as a priest wherever you are and you haven't found that actionable area where you can live out your priesthood to its fullest. Yeah, aimlessness, meaninglessness, it makes perfect sense because we've missed our ultimate calling. We want to be a part of helping you. Don't let another day, another week, another year Next year, around this time, I don't want to hear another person saying, oh, man, you know, I, I squandered another year. Don't. Let this be your time to find your priestly service and to move into it fully and completely and to live it in a way that you will find deeply, deeply satisfying. And if you're not a follower of Christ here this morning and you're like, and I don't even know what you're talking about because, like, I don't, I'm not a priest. If you're not a follower of Christ, you're right. This, is, this doesn't actually... What I'm inviting you into then is to understand a new reality for who you were made to be. Part of the gift of coming to, to faith in Christ it isn't simply that he promises you salvation and he promises you forgiveness of your sins. That is all true. It's a huge part of why you'd want to become a Christian. But he's also calling you to find your true purpose in life to fulfill your real and genuine role. That's got to factor into your, into your deliberations at some point because he's giving you a high and a privileged calling to represent him to a world that desperately needs it. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to be leading us in a couple of uh, worship songs as they, we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. But as they do, I'm just going to ask that you would, uh, let, me, let me just pray for us if you, if you don't mind. Lord, I'm, I'm just asking, Father, that you would do this work that only you can do. Lord, so many of us, we, we have meandered in life and we've sort of wandered here and there and we get distracted by our kids, but then we start to worry, what are we going to be after them? And Lord, even with our kids, we're, we're not supposed to have our lives wrapped up in our even in our, in our families or in our hobbies, our profession, we're meant for more than this. I'm praying, Lord, that you would break through. If we begin, Lord, to understand your incredible love for us and how much you just desperately desire us to come to the fullness of who we were meant to be, I pray, Lord, that you would make that a reality for us now. Even as we worship, even as we reflect on your great love for us, I pray, Father, that you would be awakening in us a deeply held, a deeply sensed uh, direction that you're making us into who you desire us to be. I pray that each person here would yield to it even now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.